My name is David Ainsworth. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens. And we've just started 1 Peter. We're two weeks in. And 1 Peter is written to encourage suffering Christians in Anatolia, which is a region which is now modern Turkey. And these early Christians were suffering because they were Christian. Um, and so the Apostle Paul is not addressing generic suffering like getting sick or losing a job or being anxious. Um, we can still learn how to endure suffering like that from 1 Peter, but that is not what he is directly addressing. First um, Peter is about suffering that is specifically tied to one's obedience to Christ. Uh, these early Christians were facing social and cultural ostracism because of their identification with Jesus. And that's why Peter addresses them as elect exiles. That's why he encourages them that they're born again, uh, that they're given a new identity and a new family and a new inheritance. And so they need not mourn the family and inheritance and identity that they have lost. Um, these are things suffering Christians need to remember and embrace if they're facing hostility in their culture. Uh, but in our discussion, um, some of us, some of you, have openly wondered, can American Christians really relate to this? Because they were an oppressed minority, very clearly. But we live in a country where Christians, specifically white Christians, have not only been the privileged majority, but have often used that majority to oppress other people. And so can American Christians, this is a question that, that you guys have asked in the moment and after service, can American Christians really ever be said to experience Christian suffering? And if we are suffering culturally, if we find that we're in this moment where the church is suffering, is that about our commitment to Jesus or is it more a natural consequence of a stained history that we actually brought on ourselves, so it's not actually Christian suffering in the way, in this, does that, or does that count as Christian suffering? Um, and then, you know, add to that, that any Christian suffering that we might be experienced feels especially silly when we think about the rest of the world, like when we think about this week and Christians who are suffering in Ukraine, like how can, how can we read First Peter and take comfort when we know there are other people who need it more than we do? Um, Ukraine might bring up another issue on people's minds that have sort of come up over the weeks. This war is between two historically Christian nations. Um, you have priests on the Russian side this week who bless tanks. You have priests on the Ukrainian side who pray for soldiers. And so what do we do with that conflict? What do we make of it? Who is right and who is wrong? How do we know? And maybe we're pretty sure we know who's right in this situation. But even if one side is one side is right and the other wrong, do both sides remain brothers and sisters? Because they each claim Christ? Or in the conflict, do they cease being brothers and sisters? Um, the Ukrainian patriarch of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church likened this to a fratricidal war, repeating the sin of Cain. Mm -hmm. Brothers killing brothers. In America, too, so much is said in the name of Christ, which plainly contradicts what is said in the Bible. Uh, someone asked the other week, who do I trust? Who is actually born again? How do I position myself 
in a confused global and historical church? Who do I attach myself to? Who do I distance myself from? And am I even allowed to distance? We want to distance ourselves, but am I allowed to because Christ has committed to us to unity? He's like called us to pursue unity with brothers and sisters. These are big and heavy questions. It's kind of like somebody hid the answers inside like a thousand piece puzzle and just like dumped it on your uh, table. And we've got to put it together if we want to know. And it's going to take some time. It's going to take help from the spirit and from each other. But we have to start somewhere. And what do you always do when you start a puzzle? Where do you always start? Corners. The edges. Oh, corners first. That's good. Yeah. Corners <laughs> and then the edges. Right? And I think the edge pieces for us in First Peter um, is this concept of Christian suffering. That in order for us to enjoy and receive fruit from First Peter over the next couple months, we really need to understand what is Christian suffering. Because if First Peter is primarily address, addressing this, we need to understand what it is. And I think in order to understand the phrase, I kind of slowed the sermon schedule down this week to spend more time here. In order to understand the phrase, we need to understand what the two words mean. How do we decide who counts as a Christian? And how do we decide what counts as suffering? Because 1 Peter has written to suffering Christians and to no one else. That is who he is addressing. And so we need to ask, who is really a Christian and who is really suffering? And as we tease out these words this morning, we'll only be able to get started, the, the, a few of the edge pieces together. But as we tease them out, I think what we'll be forced to do, or what we'll be invited to do, is both narrow and broad in these terms. So that Christian identity in the New Testament is both more narrow than you think and more broad than you think. It includes less people in some ways and more people in other ways. And in the same way, what it means to suffer as a Christian includes both, both less suffering than, the, than you think and actually a lot more suffering than you think. And I think if we can hold that tension together, which we'll walk through this morning, First Peter will open to us in helpful ways, and the Spirit will speak to us as American Christians in San Francisco in 2022. It'll speak to us, and then it'll allow us to speak that truth to other people. So let's pray and walk through this. Dear Father, we recognize that every time we come to Scripture, we are coming to an ancient document written in a world that is very different from our own. And yet, it is a living document. It is alive. And so it has power to speak to us. It's not just a historical artifact. And so on Sundays, we come and we want life. We want the Spirit's help. We don't want to abuse the scriptures. We don't want to read ourselves into the story when we shouldn't be there. But we do want to find ourselves in the story. We need help, Father. Would you... Help us this morning from your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So who is a Christian and how do we know? And since 1 Peter really assumes that all of his listeners are largely Christian, I want to actually head over to Matthew to hear from Jesus on the challenge of identifying who is Christian. Listen to Jesus in the parable of the weeds. Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. 
It says, he put another parable before them, Jesus did, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so how does this parable address Christian identity? First of all, It's clear from this parable that not everyone who claims Christ belongs to Christ. And that Jesus taught this so clearly encourages me. Because the confusion that we find ourselves in today is not unique, right? But has always been true of the church. We a lot of times talk about our moment as like like somehow very special and unique, but it has always been true that the church has included wheat and weeds. Not everyone who is called Christian is Christian. And this is a problem that Jesus anticipated and was kind enough to help us with. I'm also encouraged that this mixed reality is not a knock against the goodness of the gospel or the skill of the master. The servant asked the master, did you not sow good seed in your field? And I imagine a lot of us asking that question when we survey our churches, our history, when we think about global church, historical church, we ask Jesus, did you not sow good seed here? What did you do wrong? Why is the church like this? Are you an incompetent gardener? But Jesus did go so good, did sow good seed, right? His enemy came behind him and sowed weeds. It is not Jesus' fault, and neither is it the gospel's fault. The gospel is good and bears good fruit. As an aside, I do wonder if this parable is not in part blaming the servants, right? Because when did the enemy come? While they were sleeping. And so much of what we're enduring today is because of the church's sleep failure to protect the master's property, right? But Jesus is innocent in this. We are not. And yet, graciously in the parable, man, Jesus doesn't blame the servants. He doesn't harp on them, right? He blames the enemy. Reading this parable, I'm also encouraged that justice will ultimately be done. That Jesus is not happy with the state of the church. He is committed to getting rid of the weeds, but not before gathering the wheat. Right? The weeds will get their due. Racism in the church, justice will be served. Pastors who abuse children, justice is coming for them. Healers who perform miracles in poor places for money, justice is coming. Teachers with PhDs who deny the resurrection of Jesus, The weeds will be removed. 
But Jesus will not let his anger about the weeds compromise his promise to save every piece of wheat. And he knows that if he intervenes too early, some of his children will be lost, and he won't let Satan get that victory. He'll ride it out. And that should be a word of caution to us. We need to be careful that in our conversations about Christian disagreement, we're not so zealous to cast out weeds from the church that we accidentally pull up weeds. We have to be very careful and very gentle because that, those weeds, that wheat, are precious children of God. They're our brothers and sisters in the faith. And so this is what I mean by Christian identity needing to be both more narrow and more broad in our minds. So it, it is more narrow so that we can say that not everyone who says he's a Christian is a Christian. Christian identity does not include the weeds. And so some people who say they are born again aren't born again, but were planted by Satan to confuse and distract. And that includes some of your least favorite Christians, but it also includes some of your most favorite ones. Christian identity is more narrow than it appears when you look at the fields. But it's also more broad than the presence of a few weeds imply. Some people, many people, who frustrate me and frustrate you, who I don't think are brothers and sisters, are actually brothers and sisters. And that should humble me, it should chasten me, but it should also excite me. That is really, really good news. There is good news in the parable of the weeds because there are people in the church that I would yank now if I were Jesus, but thankfully I am not Jesus who I think might have been planted by Satan, but who are actually children of God. And that's why we should be really, really careful for dismissing whole swaths of the Christian church, whole traditions, entire communities, entire histories and nations. Of course, we should openly denounce unbelief and wickedness when we see it, but we dare not yank people too early. Let us be as patient with others as God is with us. And the fact is that people who truly believe in Jesus will eventually behave like Jesus and will be changed. And that's because salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. But works will come. What is helpful, so dialogue here, with me, what is helpful about the parable of the weeds for you in today's climate as you think about the church? Or what is discouraging?
that there's like a an option to say like this might you might not be you might be obeyed, um, but that ultimately it's not my responsibility to do the sorting, and that I like there's a an, a way for me to account for the evil and for the harm, but but like without having to be responsible for delineating like who's who. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's all helpful because you want to take a look at when you get a, uh, somebody who makes their first decision at the beginning, instead of just making it so easy to push them off to the side, you think about that. Wait a minute, they're going to need some death. I better stick, stick around with them for a while, get into some work with them, get them to get root and everything, make sure it gets water and stuff, instead of like, be like, okay, you got, you, you got saved, put them off to the side, next one, you know, and just going one out of one. You stop and think about the weeds and, you know, of all the things they don't get that makes them die out. You concentrate on that person and spend more time with them thinking on that. Yeah. Make sure they get root and get sunlight, good water. Big discourage. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Go ahead. I was going to say discouraging. Maybe just because I'm impatient is like, feels like weeds take resources, right? Blocks mm -hmm. the sunlight, takes up water. Yeah. It takes nutrients from the soil that like are growing <clears throat> side by side. Um, but that's probably egotistical. No, that's great. I hadn't thought about extending the analogy in that way. That's a great analogy. They do take up resources. It is super frustrating. Like how many times have you like tried to share the gospel with somebody and they bring up this person over here and you just hate <laughs> you want to like call down curses on that person because it's distracting you from like from meeting Jesus. Um, so it is really frustrating. I find myself really frustrated with that. I find it in the parable how they talk about the weeds and the wheat. When they first start out, they look very similar, and the servants can't tell which is wheat, which is this. And he said, Well, you bring them up, come out, no, wait for them, because the wheat grows taller than the wheat. Mm. So you can identify who is from God and who is not. Yeah. And that's when it kind of justifies, and that's why he says, wait until the end, wait until they grow, and then you see who is which, and it gives people time to grow. Yeah. That's why I see in the parable. I can't tell if it's uh, encouraging or discouraging the fact that you can't change a wheat in, or a weed in mm. wheat. Mm. Even though you're growing up next to it, you can't change it. It remains a weed. Yeah. I think it follows a lot with one of the big questions at the table of the pastors. Are we predestinated or are we free-willed? Mm -hmm. And my answer to that is we are both. In God's great knowledge, we are free-willed, but he already knows. Even through our DNA, what we're going to say, how we get through our life, everything we're going to do, he already knows every little thing. But we're also totally free-willed. You know, so he knows what the end result of the is going to be. But just like Judas Iscariot, he tried everything. He tries for every Judas Iscariot. It's even more than anybody on the planet. Even though he's going to know he's going to lose him, he doesn't want to lose a one. Mm. And it breaks his heart when he does. Yeah, you see this trend all throughout Scripture, you know, thinking about um, the sin of Cain, you know, mapping that on, the you know, Ukrainian patriarch mapping that on to, to this. And like, that... There is this like 
theme throughout scripture, like yes, they're the obvious enemies, but then there are, there are enemies of the seed like within. So you have like Cain and Abel, Isaac and Esau, you know, you have the wicked kings, um, the Pharisees, Judas Iscariot, where like there has always been, Satan has always tried to confuse the church um, and confuse the gospel and detract from the glory of God. I think we can, I mean, so apparently the servants were able to identify, they, they realized that there was weed here. And so it is something that we, in another space, can like learn and cultivate, like, man, how do I, you know, if I do think, as Emily said, like, man, I think this is a weed, what would we identify as someone? Um, someone who is failing to believe in Jesus and behave like Jesus, right? And, and doing that consistently over time who's participating in wickedness, wickedness, who's failing to love others, um, who isn't marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And so there are ways to identify weed and weed, but there still is this humility here. Um, how can we know when our view of the kingdom is too broad, and how can we know when our view of the kingdom is too narrow? Where do you feel yourself like trending? How do you, how do you feel yourself moving? Making it too narrow. Making it too narrow. Mm -hmm. And I think related to the other question that you asked, um, I feel as if uh, the struggle for me is that uh, I'm given two options and Jesus provides a third way. The two options being either to compromise or to remove myself, um, so to separate. And what Jesus offers is abiding, which is in some ways connected to the message last week mm-hmm. where what I took away was this, this radical idea that abiding is um, a, a form of resistance and that resistance is good. Um, and so, yeah, I, I tend to think of the kingdom too narrow, but I, what I'm struggling with or hearing is what, what would it mean to see, and this is tricky, to abide but not to compromise mm-hmm. in pursuit of the other, knowing that the kingdom is broader than what I imagine it to be. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like we live in a, whatever the kingdom you're aiming for, in the, whether it's the God's kingdom or other, that we're in a very narrow, cult, like narrowing culture, right? The like purists, like who do you identify with? Who are you with? Like who should you exclude? There's lots of exclusion going on <laughs> um, in our culture presently. Um, and this just gives us pause, right? To, to The kingdom is not to be a place that preemptively excludes. Anyone who feels like they're in the too broad camp and they're actually challenged to 
say the hard thing, which is that not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Does anyone tend toward that? What does that look like? I feel like I I feel like all I can my my tendency is to say like all I know is that it's broader than nothing and narrower than everything. Mm. But like I really only have like the most edge pieces. Like I'm really not sure about anything in between. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I think I I can ultimately like through head knowledge navigate to something. A, a little bit more filled in than that, but I think the only thing that I feel most, yeah, the only thing I feel really comfortable saying is like broader than nothing and narrower than nothing. Yeah. I, I feel like this parable is inviting me to wonder like if I'm even in, mm-hmm. like um, the notion that you, you don't know the difference between the weeds and the wheat until the very end. So mm-hmm. I'm feeling challenged to not um, rest on any things that have happened in the past, but to continue um, enduring into the future and hope that I too am included. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's there are other things that Jesus said that felt like don't don't be too sure. Like not everybody who says Lord Lord will enter the kingdom, and so I'm feeling like the mirror is being reflected back on me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, just like that verse that says, like, when the Son of Man returns, like, will he find faith on the earth? Like, mm-hmm. that's, like, literally, like, one of the most boring verses. Like, the fact that we can get to a point where, like, there's very little faith left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the parable of the weeds, you know, we, you know, we're, we might be sort of thinking, like, American church or global church or whatever it might be, but it applies to like this room. And so like as I'm reading it, I'm thinking about this room and it applies to my heart. Um, And I certainly have had um, men in my life who have left the faith, like close friends who I can't, I'm like so shocked. And so it's not even just that they like turned out to be bad people, they're just saying like, oh actually I don't believe anymore and it being now they're now again the hope is like we're not at the end of their life right um and so maybe this is just like a more weedy stage right <laughs> um but then there's still hope like while there's life there's hope um and so but but you do know that some of the edge pieces are like confession of christ right like um that's some of the edge pieces there so it's a really sobering, sobering um, parable, but really like hopeful. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I just encourage you, like I, I'm encouraged in this moment to like the next time that kind of situation comes up where people are like bringing up um, um, all these really terrible stories, like to just say this parable. You just say, you know what, Jesus, Jesus shared this parable and so maybe that explains the disorientation that you're feeling and that I'm feeling at the church. Um, 
I think I kind of want to be better at just like naming Jesus's parables. I think they're like connect with people. And so just like tell somebody, this is a parable. They, they'll connect with it as well. How should people who are wheat interact and talk with people we suspect might be weeds? Yeah, like how does this? So I think we are sort of, you know, taking um, to heart Hebrews 11.6 that the um, beginning of faith is this, to believe that God exists and that he is good to those who diligently seek him. Um, and so if, if, if we find ourselves grounded in that, man, I believe that God exists and that he's good to those who diligently seek him. Um, that is a, a, a wheat conviction. But as we're interacting with people we disagree with, how does the parable of the weeds impact you in your public witness? Perhaps the greatest difference between the wheat and the weeds is, is the fruit that it bears. Mm -hmm. Like I once on a trip visiting friends in Ireland was tasked with going through the barley fields and pulling out the weeds, which in this case were wild oats, which still have fruit, but have like much smaller fruit than like the big heads of barley mm -hmm. um, grain. And so like if fruit is a distinguishing factor, it's like, I don't know, the fruit of the spirit. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually, I mean, the fruit of the Spirit and, like, seeing those kinds of things, seeing the person, um, is what helps me, like, broaden the church to where you have, like, church traditions that I have, like, substantial disagreements with, but are people who are clearly marked by the fruit of the Spirit and, 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 and in the name of Jesus... It, it feels like weak to me, and I like joyfully like want to broaden that. Uh, even as I remain like convictionally disagreeing on various things, um, it's really helpful to me to like affirm goodness in people and to acknowledge wickedness in people that I agree with. To where I'd be like, man, that that behavior is the is antichrist behavior. And so, and so I may not want to narrow, it may like sort of wound me and my tribe or whatever, but I need to narrow this. Um, or at least put a big asterisk in because that is not the image of Christ. And so the, I think that is you know, spot on, like how to, looking for character in people, Christian character. Um, yeah, I think what came to mind for me is different than suspecting leads, but I guess I'm, I wonder if some of what we're supposed to be doing is more of, like, suspecting wheat, like, mm. oh, I see a little bit of wheat in you, despite mm -hmm. the fact that right now your life is against God, or, you know, this whole field, or, like, and, you know, the, the places where we find ourselves, our city, like, you, like, it seems like the, maybe the more important work is to be, like, 
oh, here's this tiny little bit of wheat, like how can we like protect it and care for it and like cultivate it and encourage it? Because I think, um, I think sometimes we're so, myself included, like so much more like fixated on weeds and um, yeah, I just, I think like trying to find those like glimmers of weed and I guess what comes to mind for me is, you know, like this, like this virtue of hope, not pessimism. It's like our, like we're called to hope, like yes, God will, will do justice and yet like how can we cultivate hope and, and be hopeful for like the weak potential in, you know, the people in our lives or in, like the things that we're a part of. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, just like, like believing that some people who really frustrate us, really embarrass us, really um, grieve us, they are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is good. It is eternally good. And so if you're thinking of an individual, a person, a stream, so like, man, there's wheat there. Praise God. There is. And justice will be served, um, but mercy will be too. Spending just a short amount of time on suffering, I think, First uh, Peter 1, 6-7, and so Jesus' parable presents a challenge that the church is made up of wheat and weeds, and we can't always tell the difference. In the church, there are people who appear like wheat to us, but who are actually weeds, and there are others who appear like weeds when they are actually wheat. And Jesus' solution to this challenge is patience. Wait until the harvest is ready when the full grain comes in, and it's obvious which is which. And sometimes it does become obvious in this life, but sometimes it won't be obvious until the next. But it always takes time. And it doesn't just take time. It takes time and suffering. Suffering is part of this process. And that's what for Peter really advances. That's the idea that he introduces here. Saving faith requires time and suffering. First Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this salvation you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, that's the time part, it takes time, if necessary, it's required, you have been grieved by various trials, by suffering. And why does this happen? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the genuineness of our faith, and when we are wondering ourselves, am I a wheat or a weed? Uh, when we are wondering about others, uh, the genuineness of our faith is proven over time through suffering. And Peter, along with the entire New Testament, says that this is a necessary process. Uh, that there is no Christian who doesn't endure suffering. Just as it was necessary for Christ to suffer, it is necessary that Christians suffer. And we have to suffer, and suffer specifically as a Christian, if we hope to be saved. Hebrews 12 says that if you do not suffer, we are not true children, but bastard children, because good fathers discipline their kids. And therein lies the urgency of our question concerning how do American Christians relate to 1 Peter. Because if we can't relate to 1 Peter, we can't relate to Jesus. 
And if we can't relate to Jesus, we're lost. Like, we have to find a connecting point to Christ. We have to find ourselves in this book. And the way to do that, again, is to define Christian suffering both more narrowly and more broadly. It is less than you think it is, and it is more than you think it is. And so first, it's less. It's not generic pain, even though that pain is real. So cancer is real pain. Um, Job loss is real pain. It's also not suffering for sin's sake, right? Uh, 1 Peter makes that clear, 1 Peter 2.20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 1 Peter 4.15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It's really funny that meddler is included in that. I'm just sort of like... We've got a few months till we get to this point, but it's like, I need to figure out a definition of meddler. Like, what is that? Murderer, thief, evildoer, meddler. Um, <laughs> but let none of you suffer as that. Um, and so the suffering Peter has in mind is not just any kind of suffering. It is more narrow. It is suffering for the name of Jesus, right? But I think it's also more broad than sort of what we think as like the... Um, apex suffering of martyrdom, right? I think it's really kind of Peter to include the, include the word various in 1 Peter 1.6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. James says the same thing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And in doing so, the Holy Spirit is signaling to us around the world 2,000 years later in very different circumstances that we are included in this book too that we are um, being spoken to. And I think a simple way to define this, suffering in 1 Peter, it, it is basically obedience which hurts. That's what su- Christian suffering is, obedience which hurts. And the pain not only proves our faith is real, it actually makes it more real. It is pruning to us when we choose obedience even though it's costly, when we choose obedience even though it hurts, it purifies us like gold in fire. It proves that we are wheat and not weeds while pruning us and making us healthier wheat. And it shows the world that we believe that Christ is worth it even when it hurts. And of course, this is obvious when Dietrich Bonhoeffer stands before a firing squad in Nazi Germany. Right? Courageous uh, Christian suffering. It's courageously speaking the truth and love to power on the right and the left, no matter the issue, no matter the outcome. Whether you get fired for it or penalized for it. It's being kind in the face of rebuke. Going without your cloak and your tunic, walking the extra mile, offering the other cheek. It's being kind to your enemies, sacrificial towards those who take from you, honoring those who dishonor you. These are sort of more obvious moments where we're called to love in the face of hardship. But it's also present in smaller moments and rhythms of obedience. And so when you get passed over for a promotion because you're not a team player, but it's because you prioritize gathering with God's people on the Sabbath, that is a kind of obedience which hurts which is costly to you. 
Christian suffering is present when someone longs to be married, but remains single because he refuses to marry someone who's not a Christian. They're seeking to be obedient to Christ, and it's painful, it hurts, but it glorifies God. Christian suffering is getting penalized for doing what everyone else does at work, but the difference is that they're willing to lie about it and you aren't. It's living below the financial lifestyle of your peers and colleagues because you give generously to people in need. The cancer itself might not be Christian suffering on its own, but to choose hope and joy and faith in Christ through cancer is a kind of obedience which hurts which is painful, but it glorifies the Lord. To consistently show up on a Sunday while fighting severe depression, severe doubt, severe anxiety, has heart and it honors the Lord. Maybe you're enduring the consequence of your sin, but even that, there's a way to endure which brings honor to Jesus. And these things and so many more, like the definition can be so broad it will accomplish exactly what 1 Peter says it will do. It will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because time and time again, you chose Jesus. And done rightly, this suffering, and done openly, this suffering will testify to the world that Jesus is better. Maybe there are some pains which need to be excluded from 1 Peter. They don't count. Um, but I wonder if most of them instead just need to be leveraged by First Peter. We need to think about them thoughtfully. How am I being obedient at cost? So that the pain will become more blessed as you transform it into obedience. Um, now, does this, anything that I say, compare to the suffering of the Ukrainian church this week? Uh, does it compare to the suffering of the historic black church in America? No. It doesn't compare. I, I don't think so. Um, but it is following their lead, right? It's following their example as they follow the example of Jesus. It encourages me that if they could obey Jesus under such extreme circumstances, maybe I can rock the boat where I'm at. Maybe I can boldly proclaim Christ, even if it hurts a little bit. Where does obedience hurt for you? Where is it costly? Where does it cost you socially, culturally, economically, relationally, in the world? Take heart. Count it all joy. Your faith is being refined. You are proving yourself to be wheat and not weeds. And if there are areas of obedience that feel too costly, don't hold back. There is blessing there. There is goodness there. There is a harvest coming which you will get to participate in. Let First Peter encourage you this morning. It is necessary that you suffer, but only for a little while. And by it you will obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And again, those who do not suffer well will not obtain the outcome of faith. And that's often how you can tell the difference between wheat and weeds is what do people do in the face of suffering? What do the people do in the face of loss? 
If they choose power and vainglory, it is not a good sign. How does a person react to suffering? Do they still believe in Jesus? Do they still love others? Does the fruit of the Spirit increase? Do they choose obedience or do they find a way out? These are markers of whether a person, you, me, is a Christian or not. Uh, Because of time, I'm going to move through, and so we will have time to chat at the end um, during the feast. Um, But as I was thinking about my suffering examples, I noticed that almost all of them are involve a power dynamic, right? Of an employee, in terms of wealth, relationally, um, there is this power dynamic at play. And that's one of the questions that we've had is, um, can American Christians suffer? Like, how can Christian people with power suffer? And the thing is that we suffer by giving away power to others. By choosing to get low. In the same way that Christ suffered, who had the most power. And yet he gave it away. He held all the power, but he came down and he gave it away. He gave it away to people who abused that power against him. But he saved the world through it. Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves. We are to have this mind which is ours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you find yourself with power, it is your Christian duty to find ways to give it away in the spirit of Jesus. Our suffering has meaning because of Christ. Without Christ suffering on our behalf, without his victory over the resurrection, it would be meaningless and we should do everything we can to avoid it. Uh, Georgia shared with me the new um, tagline for the Liturgist podcast, which used to be a Christian podcast, but now it is not. He is explicitly uh, not a Christian, but one thing that we can see that he's not a Christian is because the tagline is, love more, suffer less. It's disgusting. It's awful. Love involves suffering. That's what love is. And we should be a people who love more and suffer more. We love more and suffer more because Christ did it and because the resurrection's on the other side. Our suffering has meaning in Christ who died for us. First Peter 2, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Now there was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so as we think about the worthiness of our own lives, let us first think about his. And so maybe you've listened this morning to my description of wheat and weeds of how all Christians suffer if they want to be Christian and that's got you worried. Man, listen to that fear and let it take you to Jesus, the answer to your fear. We are not saved by our belief and behavior. Our willingness to obey at any cost doesn't precede our salvation, it follows it, right? When we see what Christ has done for us, we respond with a willingness to obey at any cost. And so let us ask God to open our eyes to the truth that Jesus has suffered on our behalf because of our sin, and by his suffering, we can be made rich. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for 1 Peter, and we are challenged by it. I don't want to keep me, keep us, from cheapening the message of 1 Peter, right? Where we we sort of uh, wiggle our way in to applications that we don't deserve. But instead, let us look at our lives and look at the church's life, look at our church, the American church, the global church, with the patience of Jesus, with the compassion of Jesus, with the hope of Jesus, and let us pursue lives of obedience that we might be refined and prove ourselves to be wheat. We pray these things in Christ's name.